Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world. Powered by Leadership Choices. Louisa Bang is a senior manager, um, has, a, has had a career in different industries and uh, different countries, different circumstances, a fascinating human being. It was in those years where we had the financial crisis. I uh, was promoted to be uh, the, the VP for the German subsidiary. And my first act was to fire half of the staff. And I thought that's a bad thing. First time for me being a leader in that position, first time having to do that act. But the bad thing was what happened the following 12 months. Every time we told the team, now we fired and now we're good, let's go. But then the months later, we had to take another, another group and another group. I had my twins. I came back to work uh, and I was sitting across my boss, a lady who was 13 years older than me. She's one of my best friends today, but she looked at, she, I, I was sitting there whining and oh, I just gave the kids to the daycare and I miss them so much. And she grabbed me by the arm and said, look, you always have choice in life. You can choose to stay home with your children, or you can choose to be here. But the choice you take, you better embrace it and don't whine about it. And I hated that woman so bad for saying that to me. But that was the turning point in my life as saying, okay, so if you choose this path to go to work and have children at the same time, you also have to take a choice of what you're not gonna do. Hello and welcome to a new episode of our interview podcast, Leaders Talk. My name is Carsten Draht. I'm one of the managing partners of Leadership Choices. And my guest today is a very, very interesting person. It's Louise Bang. And uh, Louise Bang is a senior manager, um, has, has had a career in different industries and uh, different countries, different circumstances, a fascinating human being. And uh, we would like to get to know her a little bit more uh, today. Louise, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Carsten. Looking forward to this. Mm. So, Louise, um, so maybe maybe tell us what you do today. Yes. So today I, uh, I'm actually um, the VP of IT and Q and AHSE. What a cocktail at um, the company called MHI Vestas, which is a joint venture between MHI Heavy Industries and Vestas. So I'm working in the offshore wind industry. Is this an industry where you meet a lot of women in leadership boards? No, unfortunately, we don't. Um, so our leadership team plus the extended leadership team consists of 22 individuals, out of which we only have two females. And one of them, of course, being the head of HR, as usual. <laughs> so, yeah. The normal um, position that you yeah. would expect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Louise, tell us how this all started. Um, I've understood that you spent a total of 23 years in school, which seems to be a lot um, to me. And you, you started out 
in um, making a having a degree, a bachelor's in industrial design management. Why? Yeah, so my um, it, maybe it all starts with my father and my mother. They're both uh, been self-employed. Uh, my mother was selling uh, table Danish tablecloths in Germany, and my father was designing his own curtains and selling them in Germany. So very textile-oriented, design-oriented family I come from. And, and my father is a super drawer. So I always love to draw and design and develop, and that's what we spend most of our time on. And I thought that one day I want to be a furniture designer. That was my big ambition. So I wanted to get into architecture and go into the architecture school. But for some reason, um, they didn't let me come in. I wasn't creative enough. So my second choice was to say, well, then at least let me study des industrial design management, which smelled a little bit of industrial design. But it was um, combined with the commercial side Of, um, of product development, meaning our education was all about understanding how you actually innovate and drive to a product, how is it industrialized, and how in the end is it then commercialized and, uh, and, and sold. Um, so that was what my bachelor was all about. Right, and then the next step made a lot of sense, I guess, to join Lego. Correct. So I was, uh, first of all, coming from Germany, means that we are trimmed and trained to leave school when we are 18 and go straight into university. So uh, when I came to Denmark and, and, and entered my bachelor, I was the youngest because in Denmark, the people don't start before they're 2022 because they usually do all kinds of fun stuff before going to university. So I was very young. And when I came out um, of my bachelor, I was uh, only 23 and entered Lego. And at that time, I was the youngest project manager they've ever had. Uh, so I was really a baby uh, and I had no clue what I was supposed to do, but I was trimmed and trained to become a project manager um, in, uh, in their internal agency, where it's all about to understand the product and how to launch the product and uh, build the campaigns around that. So that was really the greatest school of all those years. Wow. And uh, have you been part of Any product launches, any products that we might know from our kids or from, you know, playing with our Lego kit them ourselves? Yes. So uh, back then, um, I, was, uh, I was part of the whole launch of the so-called make and create. So this was all the, you know, selling all the bulk. Um, you might remember the campaigns where you saw these heroic kids that were had the same size as, as the heroic um, uh, figures that they created. It was like these very large can make and create campaigns. So I was part of that. That was, that was a lot, a lot of fun. And then I participated in the, um, in the Bionicle launch also mm -hmm. uh, before I left. Sounds really cool. So what made you leave, if I may ask this? What, the next step was you went to a company that is not so much known, Tantec. What, why this step? Yeah, so basically four years at Lego, and as we all know, Lego almost went bankrupt back then. And as part of that, um, the internal um, agency, so the uh, where I was hired, was actually shut down, and it was outsourced to Advance in London. And uh, in that, I actually lost my job back then. Uh, and but for, I already had created so many great connections in uh, in a networking group I was in. 
And during that time, I was actually I actually met um, the uh, managing director for Tentec, um, and he uh, he was a very young Dane, but the owner of this company was actually German, and um, this company is half German, half Danish, the Tentec. And they needed a marketing manager. And since I had was trimmed and trained in all the marketing disciplines you could think of at Lego, he thought, well, here we have a young lady. Um, she knows her discipline and she's half German, half Danish. That must be a perfect match to bring into our company. And um, so we did. But also here, I was the first female uh, in the leadership team. And uh, they had never done marketing before. It was an industrial company building machines for surface treatment of polymers. So it was really a, a strange place, but um, some really, really fun years where I could just take everything I learned at Lego uh, and actually adapt it into an industrial, um, into the industrial world. How open were they to your experience? Well, they decided to bring me in because they needed this experience, but of course they, It, it, they were making fun of some of the um, the other bosses were making fun of me when I started giving their machines names. That was the biggest thing. So they were, for example, uh, building these machines to do surface treatment of syringes. And I said, well, why don't we call it Syrintech? And they said, oh, no, never. I mean, I mean, how do we explain that to Novo? I said, well, I don't, don't. Just now it has a name and now we can market it and now we can go to the fair and, and, and you know, create some communication around it. So it became Syrintech. And if you go on Tentech's homepage, it's still called that today. Um, so the whole thing of giving their product names was something that they made a lot of fun of until they figure out that that was the first building block they needed to build a story around the products and by that actually positioning themselves on a market that was becoming more and more competitive. Mm -hmm. But you were not only the trailblazer for the first, first women, women in leadership position and the trailblazer for a new function to take place. You also went to evening school and did the Danish version of an MBA over four years. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. Uh, and all while I was also having my twins uh, as babies. I, so it, I was insane back then. And I think we even renovated our house at the same time. And and I think it's the story of not my life, but of most young people's lives that they think they have to do everything at once. And if there's one thing I, I want to tell the next generation, don't do it. It, mm. it, it. It's just not worth it. Um, you are you're everywhere and nowhere for many years. Um, of course, I don't regret that I've done it, but I think the, the model that I chose to do it all at once is, is not the idle thing to do. What's the price you paid? Is there, can you, is there a tag, a label? I, I was lucky. I, I don't feel that I paid a high price. Uh, if I ask my children today and say, well, you know, mom was gone every Saturday for school. And I said, well, we don't remember that. We don't, we don't think, well, well we don't remember that sort of. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, phew. Uh, but so I don't think, I think the price I paid was that I didn't, um, I didn't have enough quality time with my own children, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which they don't punish me for today, but maybe I, I, I could have gotten some more out of it. Mm. It's more the feeling inside of you rather than yeah. inside of them. Mm -hmm. yes. Understood. And and uh, then you moved on to, was there actually, before I continue, was there a conscious step in terms of, you know, with your with your husband, in terms of 
How do we split the workload? How do we split the uh, childcare? Was there a decision or did it just happen? There's never been a decision. He has been self-employed throughout those years and running his own business. Um, so there's never been a conscious decision. I think we, we discussed every step on the way and supported each other every step of the way. Um, but how can we say uh, we were young and, and we were just running like hell. And then, uh, as I said, after 18 years, we, we got a divorce. Um, um, so that's, of course, the highest price you can pay in life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was a price. Yeah. Yes. And in parallel, your career developed further from Tantec. You moved on to Athena and eSoft. Um, what's behind that, Louise? Yeah, so basically, after four years with Tantec, um, I was getting a little tired because, I mean, I was in the leadership team. I had established the, the marketing department and we had launched in 32 countries. And I was, you know, I couldn't really see the perspective. It's, it is a rather small company. And then at that same time, Athena was a very young, ambitious IT company that was about to go on the uh, stock exchange. And as that, they also planned to ex uh, to go uh, on the German market. So um, again, through my network, I knew the CEO, uh, Peter Kroll, and he uh, reached out and said, well, you know what, Louise, you don't want to join us, you know, come on. And, and you know, you, you, you know your stuff in Germany and you, you know how to sell stuff and, you know, come on, come on in. And um, it sounded quite sexy, actually. And I thought, IT, why not? Uh, and... And uh, being part of a, such an exciting thing as going on, you know, getting a company registered on the stock exchange was new to me too. So I, I, that was a very conscious decision um, to join that, that very, very exciting journey, I have to mm. say. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you moved on to eSoft after a couple of years. Yeah, and it's actually strongly connected to Athena because Athena uh, went on the stock exchange, on the Nordic Stock Exchange, First North, as it's called. And we did that in, uh, at the same time as eSoft. So we were both, there were two uh, very um, young, ambitious companies that went on the stock and were very successful on the stock exchange. Um, so eSoft was actually at the same time also the customer of Athena. So when ESOF got into some trouble um, and they actually needed somebody who, who could put some things in order, they, um, they headhunted me into their organization. Um, so I knew ESOF very well because they were my customer for many years. And then I stepped in to actually take over um, the role as the COO for that company. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you have, you have built a reputation already in young years to to clean things up, to, to help make the next step, consolidate? Yeah, I think it started. It didn't start with cleanup. It started with Tentec building something from scratch because it's needed to bring the company to the next step because that was what I did there. And then it sort of came into, uh, with Athena, it was more about, well, how do, we, how do we actually go to a new market? How do we become bigger? And with, and, and with that, I came into eSoft and that was, um, they also want to become bigger, but they needed to clean up first. Um, mm. so, so at eSoft was probably my first real cleanup task, uh, mm. I have to say. Okay, okay. Um, and then it moved on the next step. And the next step then was Danfoss. 
totally different industry as long as I'm concerned. So what was the driver behind that? Yeah, so um, while I was at eSoft, it um, it was a cleanup task and, and it was very exciting. But the thing was, the CEO for that company never really realized that he had actually sold his company to the stock and that he had an obligation towards the shareholders. He still believed he was the big boss. And I was always in between uh, those shareholders on the stock and him. And they didn't pursue the same ambition with the company. And uh, that was too exhausting for me at that time. So I said to myself, maybe this is the time for me to go back to the corporate world. Uh, since I had left Lego, I was in, in small, medium-sized companies, and I thought maybe this is this is the, the next step to go back to the corporate world. And I told that to my network a little bit, and within, I think it was a week, uh, Danfoss actually reached out. It was uh, the, uh, the CEO's right hand uh, who called me. He said, well, I heard that you might be interested, and we have this large uh, transformation, BI transformation program going on. And since you know a lot about IT and cleaning up and getting things to work, why don't you join us? And um, I think it was uh, Christmas Eve, I signed the contract uh, one week later and I, I then joined Danfoss in January. And Danfoss is a huge conglomerate uh, consisting of multiple companies, multiple branches, multiple sectors. How was that for you? How was the culture different than the small, medium businesses before or the culture at Lego? Yeah, so Danfoss is also an, a Danish company. So I think that the, the, the uh, DNA of the company is still uh, Scandinavian, is still Danish, that it's that um, you, you still put people first, uh, you treat people well, um, you know, you're very well protected. So I think that that has been the same in all those workplaces. I think what was different in Danfoss was that it was not on the stock exchange, meaning it's family owned. Um, and if you're not on the stock exchange, you don't have obligations to tell your surroundings what you do. And nobody's expecting you to make a hell out of a money in the speed of light. But it's more about sustainable growth. And so when I joined, <clears throat> I had to establish the BI transformation program, so the business intelligence transformation program. And there was just a lot of money and a lot of breath and a lot of patience. And, and that was um, the most beautiful thing to do ever. <laughs> I, I didn't have to go to the board every month and tell why I spend which money and which next orders to come. No, I just had to walk in and, and do the job um, with plenty of money and plenty of people. So that was a breath of fresh air for me mm. at that time. Wow, great. And uh, so what was the brand or how did you how does how did this add to your brand or your reputation what you did there? Yeah, very much because when you enter such a uh, when you enter such a role right in I was reporting to the CFO so right in the corp the heart of the company you are very visible uh, and at the same time you have great visibility. Um, mm -hmm because the transformation program I was running was going across all business units. Um, and by that, I, in the speed of light, got quick insights in the business overall, how it's run, uh, who is who, and, and so on. So um, I was very visible and people got to know me very quickly inside of Danfoss. Um, I think outside that was not really noted that 
that uh, I was there. I think it was more internally that I was a visible uh, young woman who who joined this very male-dominated world to do this turnaround. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. I mean, doing a turnaround is not always a nice situation or major transformation is not always a nice situation. You face a lot of resistance. Um, you maybe make enemies. There's, it gets political. How do you deal with this? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I think this is in my DNA. If if somebody, if resistance arrives, if uh, some, um, you call it enemies, I, I don't really meet enemies. I've never really met enemies in my career. I've met a lot of resistance, but this is where I have the most fun. Because then the storytelling comes in, the convincing comes in, the let me spend some time with you and explain to you why this is so good for you. And this gives me juice. Mm. Uh, so for me, resistance is, 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 is what keeps me, uh, you know, gets me up in the morning, <laughs> if you want to say so. Yeah, great, great. And then, I mean, not only did you do a hell of a job, you also decided to do another executive MBA. Yes. I mean... Louise, what on earth was driving you? Well, um, at that stage, I was actually a director in, in the corporate world. And I looked at my peers and also at the leaders who were senior directors and VPs and I don't know what around me at Danfoss, and they were all males. They were all males. And I thought, what on earth do I have to do? I just run this massive turnaround and I still wasn't offered a position that was You know, even the job I did then was more than a director role, but it was just not recognized as such. And, and I thought, what do I need to, to do? And I thought, well, maybe the answer is that I just need this stamp on my paper that I have an executive MBA. That was a stupid thinking, but that's, that's what drove me into that. So that kind of underlines the notion of as a, as a female, as a woman, you have to work harder, have to be more successful, have to have more achievements under your belt in order to stand up against the male colleagues. Yeah, that was my thinking back then, actually. Yeah, I, I and <clears throat> to be honest, um, it worked because at that point, Bombardier called me, at, uh, you know, three years later, Bombardier called me and they actually had as a requirement that you have an executive MBA. So I don't even know. I mean, Carsten, you tell me you've been at Bombardier yourself. I mean, I don't think I would ever have gotten that call if this stamp wasn't on my paper. Well, matter of factly, I had an ex executive MBA too, just before I joined Bombardier. So there might be a parallel, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, so that was the first time that you were working in an international company that was not Scandinavian from its culture, right? Correct. And maybe for the for the listeners, Bombardier is a Franco-Canadian company by origin and had acquired um, Atrans, the um, the German bra uh, rail branch of uh, Daimler before. And uh, so it was a uh, how was that culture different? See, I'm not sure if it was necessarily the culture that hit me the first. I think what hit me the first uh, joining Bombardier was um, It was a company that was completely out of control. I mean, there was not a single process that would that would that worked. There was not an there was not even an org chart when I joined a massive company like Bombardier with 70,000 people. There was not a org chart. So 
trying to get onboarded in a, in a massive company like that, trying to figure out my job as head of global project management and who is who and, and how do things work around here, I wouldn't even, I couldn't even turn to an org chat to find out who to go to. So that by itself really showed me, okay, so I'm really in a different arena. Here it's all about who knows who. That, so I had to change my, my approach uh, tremendously and spend the first 100 days not doing anything else than sitting in the airplane flying around just to meet the people face to face because they were not even using Skype or any other video conferencing. So they expected me to get to know the company without an org chart and without having FaceTime with people or even a camera on. So it was, I don't know if that was a cultural thing. I think I more had a shock that this company really, how do they even deliver trains? <laughs> that was my first question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> what was your mandate, Louise? My mandate yeah, I think we jumped a little too fast from, from Danfoss because after I had done the first transformation at Danfoss, uh, I actually was promoted to the role of head of global project management, where my mandate was to implement the agile way of working into uh, the new product development. Um, so this was the first. Uh, so what I did, I took everything from the agile world, from the IT world I came from, and implemented elements of that into a very industrialized company like, like Danfoss with great success. And we cut development time uh, in half. And uh, that was something Bombardier had heard of. And uh, the CEO back then was very eager to see if this was something that Bombardier could benefit from on the train side. Mm -hmm. And uh, could they? No. <laughs> so. So a little bit back to, as I said, I joined and it was one big mess. Um, I My mandate was to head global project management, meaning uh, leading 1,600 project managers and planners. Um, and first of all, get a grip around what's the demography? How do they work? what's the What does the project machine look like? And then to identify areas where we could pilot the agile way of working. And we identified three major projects where we um, piloted uh, the agile way of working. One was uh, a large project, a large contract in Sweden, one in New York and one in LA. Um, a year into this piloting, I realized together with the project directors and the project teams and the external consultancy I had, look, you know, there is just no live data in this company. Everything is Excel-based. Um, we couldn't do any live decision to, because we didn't have the data. And if you can't take live decisions, you can't accelerate your execution time. So I had to go back to the leadership and say, look, you know, I can continue changing the ways of working and processes, but it's not going to give you the speed you're looking for because you don't even have the data structure. And uh, with that, um, they quickly said, well, let's establish the Intelligent Enterprise Program, which was all about um, scrapping everything we have, implement standard end-to-end -end processes, translating it into an enterprise solution, the S4HANA, uh, and then uh, launch it. So I, I said, well, that sounds like a great idea. Go ahead and do that while I continue my thingy. 
Um, but then they came to me and said, no, Louise, we want you to run that program. And I said, no way. I mean, I, I, I knew what it takes because I had, you know, I've been at Danfoss. I know <laughs> what money it takes, what time it takes, what patience it takes to, to, to do that. And I said, I don't see that's happening here. And they said, don't worry, we have the money. We have, you know, we have, just go, 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 go. 250 million euro investment, you know, just go. Um, and so I was, as they said, voluntold to run that program. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what happened then? Yeah, so we established a, a massive cross-functional team with internal, external 400 people team co-located in Berlin every other week. Uh, we went all the way through the uh, RFP and through the design phase of this program. We did start the first build, uh, but uh, then uh, Bombardier got into a lot of trouble and started selling off parts of their aero business. Uh, and it, the whole thing started crumbling. And then when we actually heard that Bombardier would be selling off their train uh, division to, uh, to Alstom, I didn't see any means in continuing this program and neither did the leadership. So mm -hmm. we backed it all. Wow. What a journey. <laughs> What yeah. a journey, right? Um, and then you moved on to another industry, which is, I would say, pretty male-dominated, um, the offshore wind industry. Tell us about that, please. Yes. So... Um, in this whole notion of Bombardier, meaning having spent three years in the transportation, I, I came to, came to a, a stage in my life where I had to say to myself, either I now continue down the line staying in transportation, which would be a good thing because I just invested uh, three years in learning that industry and maybe I want to harvest. So I said, either I go down that road or I, I, I switch gear and, and go back to Danfoss. Um, and uh, I talked to my, my own mentor um, uh, and uh, I said, what, what do you think I should be doing? He said, you know what? You should go to something more sexy. You should be going to renewable. Go, go ahead. You just go network like crazy, network your way into uh, renewable. And so I did. And uh, I ended up with an offer from Siemens Gamesa and from MHI Vestas. And uh, I decided to go with MHI Vestas because that is a company that has a lot of breath and a lot of time where Siemens Gamesa at that time seemed to be at a crossroad. They had just acquired Gamesa. It was a big mess. And I thought it, it smelled a little bit like Bombardier for me. And I thought, nah, not going to do that. So this is how I ended up at the MHI Vestas. Wow. And that's another different i mean it's a danish but it's also a japanese company yeah. culture how does a danish japanese company culture look like um you everybody who has been in japan or knows of japanese products knows that everything is neat and clean and in order everything i mean the way your pens look the way your table looks the way your clothes looks everything is just neat and decent and in order when you are in Japan. If you combine that with the Danish culture, that is very much about um, being modern, being um, inclusive, um, 
if you put these two things together, you get something really, really, really beautiful. You get a company where it's all about being um, calm, decent, uh, treat each other with the uttermost respect uh, and listen, listen to each other. Um, so I think culture-wise, I mean, Lego was great, Danfoss was great, but this really has a different notion to it because adding the Japanese on top really asked the Danes to maybe um, uh, shut up a little bit uh, and also listen a little bit to what the Japanese have to say because they have a little, they have a little more control over processes and tools than the Danes have. Interesting. Sounds really fascinating. And and that was only the professional side that we looked into, Louise. On the private side, um, you also had a third child, got married a second time, and now between the two of you, you have six kids. Um, I just wonder, do you have a different watch where there's more hours in a day? What's the trick on earth? Oh, but there's not a trick and we are not a super family or a super anything. I think a, a lot <clears throat> from a very young age uh, when I had my twins and I also, I think I tell a little story to tell you what the trick is. I had my twins. I came back to work uh, and I was sitting across my boss, a lady who was 13 years older than me. She's one of my best friends today, but she looked at, she, I, I was sitting there whining and, oh, I just gave the kids to the daycare and I miss them so much. And she grabbed me by the arm and said, look, you always have choice in life. You can choose to stay home with your children. Or you can choose to be here, but the choice you take, you better embrace it and don't whine about it. And I hated that woman so bad for saying that to me. But that was the turning point in my life as saying, okay, so if you choose this path to go to work and have children at the same time, you also have to take a choice of what you're not going to do. And I choose not to be the perfect mom. I chose not to be the soccer mom who bakes the cakes and comes to all the gatherings and, and all that kind of stuff. I just chose not to. Um, unfortunately, that is not very well received amongst the mothers around me, right. but you need to be resilient towards that stigma that they give you. Um, but I continued the remaining years, the last 20 years living after the same path. I don't have to be perfect anywhere. My garden looks like shit and uh, my car is usually not clean. So what, you know, I mean, when my husband thinks it's too ugly, he drives it and cleans it. Right. But it, it's, um, I, I think, I don't have more hours. I just prioritize differently. I don't need to look beautiful on the outside, the house and the garden and everything. No, family first. That's how we live. Mm. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for that openness. That's really refreshing. And I, I just realized I had a lot of interviews with um, other leaders who are male and I never asked them the same question. How do you integrate family and work? Because I just realized in my mind, there's also this pattern. It just works, you know, and, and, and only when there is a, a woman who is successful, I come up with this question. I just realized that for myself, that this bias is, is deeply ingrained in even in me. And I consider myself actually a feminist with three daughters. Uh, but yeah. So what's your reasoning on that? 
Well, I think shame on you. Shame on you, Carsten, for asking that question, right? <laughs> Only to me and not to the other males. Um, I think we cannot I think we cannot neglect the fact that there is a difference between male and female. We cannot ne neglect the fact that the society still sees differently on those two, and luckily. But having said that, I dearly hope for the young males who are going to become fathers now that they will um, act differently in the future and take their role and their toll as fathers um, and dare to show, um, how should we say, dare to show uh, compassion and time and spend time with their children um, and not putting their job first because the price is too high. You can ask any male in their 50s and they would tell you, well, if there's something I regret is that I didn't spend enough time with my children. Yeah, I would echo that. I mean, I'm 50 now and I would say the first nine years of when our kids were born, I didn't see much of them because I was traveling all the time, making a career or thinking to build a career. And uh, yeah, that's something that I regret. Yeah. Clearly. Yeah. But I think I, I now I put the, a lot of emphasis on that. I hope for the males, I hope for the females, but a little bit um, back to something that we talked about before Carstmas. I think the companies also need to reinvent themselves and say, what can we as a company do to allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The conditions that... that the conditions. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, looking back at your career, and that sounds like we are looking back and you're at your end of uh, uh, your career, which is far from, couldn't be farther from the truth, but looking back so far, maybe, um, it looks it looks like you had a very active way to design your career or to steer your career. Um, is there? How would you reflect on that? Uh, you, you mentioned you have a mentor, uh, you have a net, you have a network of people who are close to you. Is there anything in terms of recipe, something that worked well for you, which you think is very very important for any leader? Um. Yeah, it, it sounds like I steered my career and sounds like it was all well thought of. Of course, that's a big lie. Um, the I think when my kids ask me, Mom, how, how did you get so far in your career in such a young age? Uh, because we don't get it, you know. Uh, and I said, well, look at me and also look at your uncle. Um, so my brother, who's seven years older, Who's, uh, who's the managing director of a very, very large uh, coffee company uh, in, in, in South America. He has um, not taken a single education uh, compared to me being 23 years in school. But what's, what's the same in our DNA is that we've, I think we are always um, patient, we are honest, we are decent, And we, um, we uh, show interest in people. And I think that's what has often made others see us and wanting to give us a chance. Mm -hmm. Because all my career has been about people seeing me and wanting to giving me the next great opportunity. So I think that has more been my recipe than anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in, well, in hindsight so far, that uh, you know, working harder, achieving more, um, being more engaged, being more out there compared to your male colleagues, has that been proven true or is there something else that you analyze? Um, 
I, I, I would say two main drivers uh, throughout all of my career. I've always been in networking groups where I met peers from other industries that I could learn from. Mm-hmm. And I've always had a mentor and I've had three different mentors depending on where, what stage I was in in my career. And they were always individuals who were 20 years ahead of me in their career um, and who could look at, they didn't know, not, none of them knew me privately. They all just knew me from a professional side and they could really guide me at some of those uh, crossroads that I, I was at. Uh, and I think that's um, that's probably been the most valuable piece of, of my my career. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. Just yesterday, we had a large town hall, the, us executives, and our head of HR, she was on stage and she was asked, uh, so how, how, how do you want to go about uh, uh, personal development here at the company? What are you going to invest in in the years to come? And she said, look, you know, uh, we, we will be investing in all of you. But remember, only 10% of your learning comes from classroom. Uh, 20% comes from maybe reading a book, watching some podcasts. And 70% comes from learning at the job. Right. Um, and, and if we take that notion... Um, I think uh, I think that is what we all should remember. You know um, that that, that uh, th- this is where we learn that you that you stay open at work and learn and look a little bit outside of your little turf at work. Also, be interested in what well, you know. If you're in the sales department, maybe you should be interested in what they do in, in you know over in the finance department or over in procurement. You know, don't just stick your nose in your own little turf, but be interested in the rest and meet people and talk to them, show interest. And, and this is how you shape your career. Yeah, what I what I hear you say is be curious for other people and reach out to them and stay in touch and invest in relationships, right? Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. And is there any mo- role models, positive or negative, that you had? I mean, you, you mentioned your mentors. But that's not exactly always a role model. So is there anybody that you that you said, wow, I, I want to be like that person or I don't want to be like that person at all? I don't think I have one individual. I think it, it shifted throughout my career who I was looking towards. I think it was more, I think I was more thinking of, okay, I need to sidestep and tell a different story. I... Uh, in my, you can't see it because we don't have camera, but here in my office, I have a book. It's a book that comes out every year that uh, where they put all the top 100 leaders in Scandinavia and tell a little story about each of them. And I get this book for free every year because I'm part of some business network, whatever. Um, when I opened that book six years back, out of the 100 There were two females. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and I always thought, okay. And, and I look, I read about those two females and those two females were actually more like men. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, I want, don't want to be one of those females that just look like the rest of the men. So I said, I want to be a role model. And uh, how can I be that? And that is to show a lot of myself when I'm out leading also sharing my my private ups and downs, um, sharing myself to show that there's a human behind. Um, so I think more that 
I have been more concentrating how can I be a role model rather than who is my role model. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And how is the number of female leaders developing in this book now? Still the same. Okay, so you are missing there. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I need to go there. I, I mean, <laughs> let's, let's talk in a couple of years. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but that's not my ambition. I think, right. I mean, if I were, if I were to be put in there, it should solely be to show the way for others, so that at some day we have fifty-fifty in that book. Yeah, great. So, Louise, what is your ambition? Um, well, I think um, my ambition is to downscale downscale every single thing in my life. I mean, the minute that the last children moved out, I want to have a smaller home, a smaller everything. I just want to downscale. And the same on the work side. Uh, I, I, I'm not going to be in the corporate world in 10 years from now. I, I for sure will be working with the corporate world, maybe in, in, in different roles, but um, I don't want to spend that much time or at work. I don't want to spend that much time looking after house. I, I just want to downscale. That's my ambition. Wow. Really inspiring. Um, looking back, um, a question that we ask everybody in this podcast, what was your greatest moment in your career or in your life so far? What was your darkest moment? Oh, uh, okay. Um, Let me start with the darkest moment so that we end up with something positive. Uh, my darkest moment was when I was working uh, for Athena. Uh, it was in those years where we had the financial crisis. I uh, was promoted to be uh, the, the VP for the German subsidiary. And my first act was to fire half of the staff. Um, and I thought that's a bad thing. First time for me being a leader in that position. First time having to do that act. But the bad thing was what happened the following 12 months. Every time we told the team, now we fired and now we're good. Let's go. But then the months later, we had to take another, another group and another group. And we did that four times in a row. And it, we lost all credibility. We lost everything. Faith. Uh, it was just such a dark, dark, dark time and dark moment. And I couldn't see the end. And no matter who I turned to in my network, to my mentor, to other uh, uh, executive leaders, none could tell me, this is the recipe, Louise. This is what you're going to do. Everybody was just uh, in the dark. Um, and I was very, very close to burnout at that time because I just couldn't, I was just too young for that task and then maybe I was, would get a burnout today too I don't know but uh, back then that was really my darkest moment mm -hmm. um, my brightest moment um, and I have to say it was actually at Bombardier um, when we had mobilized the 400 people to run the uh, uh, the uh, the poster as it was called the, the, the large uh, intelligent enterprise transformation program There was, this was just a group of fantastic people all together in Berlin and we were rallying for 12 months. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. Uh, so that was just, it was not a moment, it was a year of fun. Great. Until the money ran out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, 
reminds me of something parallel that I experienced <laughs> at Bombardier. Yeah, great, great, great. And uh, I mean, you look back at multiple companies, multiple cultures, big ones, smaller ones, bigger ones, um, different nationalities, uh, different continents actually uh, influencing it. Um, what kind of company are you trying to build now? What in your in the sphere of influence that you have? What kind of place do you want to have around you? Yeah. So um, what? And I'm not saying me, but I I hope that I share that view with my peers because we just are starting to talk about the future. We're starting to talk about who do we want to be in 10 years from now because the wind industry is still so young uh, and and we have come to stay because we know the world has to uh, turn towards renewable energy. Mm-hmm. Um, what? So basically who we want to become, we want to become the role model not only of producing, how, you know, delivering uh, bits and pieces to, uh, to the wind industry, uh, but we also want to be a role model of how do we actually bring uh, our products to life in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. And that is a very big theme that I think all companies, of course, have on their radar right now, the whole sustainability thing. But we really have put money and people behind that journey to demonstrate how we can uh, become a true sustainable company and not only producing uh, products for sustainability, if you want to say so. (laughs) It's two different things, right? Um, And by that, really attracting attracting the right people to to our world, um, that's that's what I would like to see uh, happening. And that would be new to me. Uh, I haven't been working for a sustainable company before. Is that what is that doing to your experience of meaning in the workplace? Well, I think that the, 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 your question almost answered itself, right? I mean, we all want to go and 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 spend eight nine hours a day of work life in something that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think being in the transportation industry made a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. A lot. I mean, you can probably echo that. Um, but here, it just be, gets a little bigger because it's really building the future of this world. Right. How are we producing energy in, in the generations to come? Mm-hmm. It can't become any more meaningful, I believe. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a lot of listeners of this podcast are leaders who are young in the career, who are aspiring leaders, um, male, female, um, obviously, there's coaches. So my question uh, to you is: Is there anything, any any piece of advice that you can that you can give to our listeners? Yeah, I, the only advice I can give, and it's the same I give to my my children. It's the same I give to my uh, the people who report to me. Um, and it sounds very simple, very stupid, but it's so true. It, be yourself. You need to be yourself. If you're not yourself, nobody's going to trust you or believe you in whatever you say and whatever role you're in. It just will come out at some point. So you better just don't. Just be yourself, be true, be authentic. That's what's going to drive your career. That's what I would say to anybody. 
Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's, I mean, looking at your career and also your private life, it looks like a, a red thread almost, like that you try to, you were always fighting to be true to yourself somehow. Yes, I am. And I hope most people do <laughs> in the end of the day. Um, but maybe I, I, I went a little more on the edge sometimes to, to stand, uh, uh, to say no when things were just not right at the right. workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you would, in hindsight, you would want to change? In my career? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for sure, um, and this is also what I'm telling my kids, I, I cannot recommend that you study and work at the same, at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. it just takes away years from your life. It takes, it takes years away from your life. It takes years away from your loved ones. It just, it's, no, don't do it. <laughs> Great insight. Um, Louise, last question for this podcast as always. So what is it that I would, uh, that you would, like me to ask you what's the closing question that i should ask you ah uh, what's for dinner today um <laughs> i think um i think the uh i don't know carsten <laughs> i don't know i honestly don't know what what you should be asking me uh, as, as, as a closing remark i i think um what you what you could ask me is What do you do on those days when you uh, just feel there is no more energy left? Yeah, I would really like to know that. Yeah, because th that happens. Uh, and of course it does. Uh, and I can tell you what I do. I pull the plug. Mm -hmm. I simply pull the plug uh, and I allow myself to pull my pl the plug towards everything and everybody and just rest allow myself to rest. And I think that's a discipline that many don't know how to, and they get bad conscience. Oh, I should be doing, and I should, and I should, and I should, and I could. Don't just pull the plug. When it's enough, it's enough. Yeah. And I think you need a certain degree of inner autonomy or independence in order to do that, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I think so. Some people would get nervous when they then pull the plug. Um, but um, but I think that's maybe a thing you could be training, dear young leaders. And <laughs> when you're on your way up, you need to pull the plug mm -hmm. once in a while. Yeah, something that something that we work on a lot in our resilience workshops, as you know. So yeah, definitely. Luis, thank you so much. This was really inspirational. Um, I really love that story and and all the stuff that you how you put that together and. Um, yeah, I'm really curious to, to see um, what's next and, and how this will all unfold. And let's keep in touch and, and talk again. Thank you so much, Carsten. Have a wonderful weekend. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And what have you learned, Carsten? This was interesting um, and really inspiring. I like the way how um, Louise is open and... Uh, authentic and, and talks about her life in a, yeah in a very decent way i think she really role models this decency but also the hard work um, that is behind it also that not everything is like shiny and glossy it's very credible very i think very easy to believe her and i think she's a true role model not only for female aspiring leaders or or, or women in in general but also for male 
um, uh, leaders. I think this is a lot of stuff that I can uh, learn from her in terms of how she approaches things about her openness and, and especially I like this inner autonomy and this independence which I think is so important to have your own genuine value system that is independent of the world around you that you have a voice a solid voice that you can listen to even when there's a lot of noise around you and people having different opinions and own interests uh, so really really great and what else is new at leadership choices on november 25 we will have our next open lc university we will have about 120 attendees from different sectors of the industry um, different uh, companies we will have managers we will have coaches we will have hr executives together discussing preparing leaders and organizations for the future how does that work um, how do we bounce back stronger um, how do we become resilient in terms of organization and in terms of uh, leaders and uh, really excited and very much looking forward to that will be a great event um, if you're not on the invitation list send me an email and uh, we can see what we can do there's a lot of uh, tickets already um, sold but uh, yeah um, let's give it a try what can we look forward to in the next episode of leaders talk my next guest is sherry roberts sherry um, is originally a u.s american from connecticut um, and then uh, during her life moved to europe um, is now living in london since more than 20 years and 10 years ago founded a company called the longest stay a company that is disrupting an industry that didn't even exist and uh, is is been a successful entrepreneur um, ever since and she has had a enormous a, a life full of enormous life challenges that are really impressive and many people including myself would have probably said wow you know what I'm, I'm not going to succeed here I'm not going to carry on but she did and uh, we will listen to her story and I guarantee you it's going to be very very interesting so please listen in This was an episode of Leaders Talk, the interview podcast portraying leaders who are committed to better leadership, better organizations, and a better world, powered by Leadership Choices. If you want to give us feedback, please send an email to leaderstalk at leadershipchoices.com. Thank you for listening.